This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. Yeah, here's the crazy thing. They have all these toys, and then when you actually deal with them in court, and they, they, they have these lengthy police reports about what they allegedly saw, and then they show you these grainy, terrible photos to back it up, and you ask them, what is this? And say, well, we don't have a good camera. Like, you kidding me? I mean, you have military-grade everything, but you can't get a good cell phone camera? It's just, it makes no sense. Yeah. So um, smart policing, if nothing else, would be a good idea, if not defunding them. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. This week on Crossing Division, we have criminal defense attorney Chris Van Vechten, who's going to talk with us about um, what he sees locally in Tacoma with the Tacoma Police Department, Pierce County Sheriff's Office, and Pierce County Prosecutors. But first, as we've been doing every week, although I think I might have skipped last week, our coronavirus updates. And let me tell you folks, the numbers, they are not good. So as of today's Seattle Times, uh, it says confirmed cases as of July 1st. So there's a little lag here. Total confirmed cases in Washington, 34,151. Total deaths, 1,342. Uh, and uh, in Pierce County, uh, we're holding fairly steady to where we were last week. We've cooped up a little bit. Uh, we Our total case count is a, is a 2,647, and we've experienced 104 deaths. But that gives us a case rate of the number of cases per 10,000 residents is 29.8, which is higher. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was around 15, and then it started creeping up, and and this is higher than it was last week. So um, we're going to be talking, I think, a lot more about this for a lot longer. Um, but in the meantime, we will talk about crime and punishment in Tacoma. So Chris, why don't you start out, tell me a little bit about yourself and your law practice. Uh, yeah, I uh, started out as a uh, prosecutor, Rule 9 prosecutor in uh, Thurston County District Court. Um, actually, I started out in their appeals unit in 2010 and then switched over to domestic violence prosecution in 2011 um, and did that through 2012 and then switched over to the city of Lakewood as a prosecutor there in 2013. And then through a long series of events, I, uh, it was made clear to me that I needed to switch sides, uh, whether I wanted to or not. And it ended up being a good thing for me. So in 2014, I launched my own solo practice and have been a criminal defense attorney since. Uh, my second year, I had a really big break that got me a lot of good exposure. And um, since then, it's been all up until a coronavirus created some incredible challenges for the courts that we're all still working through and um, having a lot of um, very concerning consequences, as I'm sure you all are feeling as well. But mm -hmm. uh, that's in a nutshell what I'm doing these days. Well, uh before we get into talking about policing and the prosecutors, what is it like right now? I mean, how do you handle your cases? How do clients get a hold of you? How do you talk to them? And, and what what is the criminal court system looking like right now with the coronavirus? Uh, it's a patchwork of different responses. Um, some counties that weren't particularly hit or had different philosophical views on how we should respond to this have not really changed anything. But because the Supreme Court has suspended trial by jury, they've been doing everything but jury trials. Uh, other jurisdictions just completely closed down. Some have 
predominantly become remote courts where things are being done on Zoom. Um, and it's, it's, it's extremely problematic no matter where you are. In terms of accessing clients, one of the good things is that the jail is one third as full as it normally is. Um, a lot of people were let out out of, I'm not going to say altruism concern for them, so much as concern that this virus would spread. Um, but the problem is those who were left behind have been difficult to reach. Things are getting better. King County has found a way to safely uh, have uh, attorneys visit with their um, clients. Pierce County figured it out as well. Calling us has been a little bit problematic. We, we would prefer to have things back the way they were, but we are getting access to them now. Um, in terms of getting things achieved for your clients, it's been very difficult. Only so-called essential activities or things that the prosecutor and the state both agreed on were allowed to move forward for a very long time. So what was essential was charging people mm -hmm. and imposing conditions of release and taking pleas of guilty. So in other words, it was essential to still punish. But if you wanted to fight back, if you wanted to do a suppression motion, if you wanted to argue for the lifting of a no contact order, um, and of course, if you want a jury trial, that wasn't even on the table, but anything else you needed to get the prosecutor to agree. Yeah. Let's, let's let your client's rights be asserted right now. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't really much incentive for that to happen. And I candidly, there was other problems like witnesses terrified to show up uh, or unwilling to show up if they're not being paid right now. There's a lot of state witnesses like toxicologists, for example, who've been furloughed. And so if you want someone to testify that this is in fact a narcotic, well, you're going to have to pay me, right? And, and so it's created a, a lot of problems, but um, things are starting to get better. And I'm hopeful that on Tuesday, uh, when the Supreme Court's suspension of trial by jury expires, we will start to see kind of pressure that the system requires to get things to move forward. Um, I am concerned that the Supreme Court has kind of thrown a, a lot of... There, there hasn't been much definitive demands in there. They said that trial by jury may continue, not that it shall, that it may, that you can do a jury trial with six preemptory challenges per side or three, depending on whatever the judge wants. If you want to do some of the jury trial remotely via TV, that's okay too. And it's like, you know, like it's just a lot of extreme discretion given to local courts to try to figure out what is the best way forward, which in one sense makes sense. And in the other sense, it's going to ensure a lot of, review about what we we mean by the right to trial by jury and due process in this country. And I expect that this is going to be a debate we're going to have because of this experience for at least a decade mm -hmm. and will frame what we understand these rights to mean for at least a generation, if not longer. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, it's exciting to get to be a part of it, even though I'm on the losing side of it, being the yeah. defense counsel of it. Um, it. It's nonetheless exciting to get to sh uh, shape some of these ideas, but it is also extremely alarming. Can your can, can your viewer is this a podcast or is this also a, a show? Yeah, okay. it should be it should be a show. This one loves podcasts and oh, sure. yeah. Um, yeah. So let me ask you this: Have you got any sense that anyone has agreed to a plea deal or has um, pled guilty simply to try to expedite things out and and in in maybe get out of the jail because they're worried about their health? Um. None of my clients, yeah. um, my clients who were left behind, for lack of a better way of saying it, were left behind for a reason. Mm. But I will point out that three out of four of them are not white people. And that's a concerning thing to me, that why is it that we have come to the conclusion that the most dangerous people to leave behind in jail are always disproportionately, you know, 
not white people. Um, I did have one client who was out of custody who took a plea deal simply because he's an an emergency medical technician. He's an EMT. Mm -hmm. He was charged with a minor assault on his girlfriend. Um, There was a pandemic. The stress of that situation even affects professionals. And um, he, he did something wrong. But under normal circumstances, it would have been something that I could have gotten rid of, for lack of a nicer way of saying that, you know. Um, But because he um, was put on um, suspension from his job as an EMT um, in the middle of a depression, in the middle of a pandemic, he was willing to give up his eventual right to a jury trial and um, take a plea deal with the understanding that he would be able to keep his job because his primary concern was how can he provide for his family? And more importantly, how can he help address, he has, he has special training in healthcare in a health crisis. So doesn't it make sense if this is your life's commitment to get back to the front line? And that was more important to him rather than the um, label of being a criminal that he's going to have to live with for a while. Um, And the, the collateral consequences of conviction because this was a pandemic. He believed in what he was doing. A young man, early twenties, he wanted to tell. So he, um, out of concern for other people did take a plea deal, but out of concern for himself, no. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you a little bit about sort of what your experience has been and what your impression has been about policing in Tacoma. And, and so let's start with the law enforcement side, the Tacoma uh, police department and sheriffs to Pierce County Sheriff's office. First of all, What's your generally impression, your impression of those two off, uh, two different offices? Are they much the same or are they quite different? Between the, the, the city of Tacoma's police department yeah. and the. Yeah, I, I think they are largely mirror images of mm-hmm. each other. I think that. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you off the. I, I could tell you clear differences between the philosophical views of the Thurston County Sheriff and the city of Olympia's police. Mm-hmm. I, could, I couldn't tell you clear cut philosophical differences between the city of Tacoma's police and the Pierce County uh, Sheriff's. Mm-hmm. I will say that the city of Lakewood's police department has sort of a cowboy culture that is kind of, I think, problematic. And they have some officers who are well known both to my clients and to prosecutors and to people in the community for being rogue cops who go outside their jurisdiction in the name of, you know, getting the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And I think push things too far and um, cause problems. Washington State Patrol, of course, is its own culture. And they're also, we have to remember there's there's more than just the county. There's more than just the city. We've also got the Washington State Patrol running through this as well. Um, It's a very police society. They all have their, their cultures, I guess. But between the county and the city itself specifically, other than the demographics they police are somewhat different. The philosophical views they have seem to be very similar mm-hmm. in all honesty. Yeah. And what's been your experience or what's your impression with things like um, random car stops or random stopping of people to ask them questions? And I ask this because, uh, and I, I told the story a couple of years ago, um, I have only been stopped once uh, by, by a police officer in Tacoma and it was um, 20 some years ago when Joe and I were driving and we had, uh, you know, it was a completely vacant road and we, you know, did a U-turn 
to go the other direction. And I don't know where the cop car was, but the police officer pulled us over and said, you know, do you know why I pulled you over? And I, I said, you know, really, I have no idea why you pulled me over. And he said, well, you, you pulled a U-turn and that's not, a, that's not allowed in the city of Tacoma. And I thought, I thought, really? I mean, what on earth, what kind of laws, that's bizarre. And I actually went back to my office and kind of looked up a couple of, you know, municipal code sections to try to figure out, you know, how, how could you possibly know if you're a driver in Tacoma that U-turns were illegal in the city of Tacoma? And, and eventually just dismissed it and thought, well, that was just weird thing. It took me years for it to occur to me that what had really happened was he just wanted to stop us and figure out who was in the car for some reason. Um, yeah. Because that never happens to me as a as a white person and now an older white woman. Um, but but I think it happens all the time to other people. And yeah. and uh, so tell me a little bit about what you know, if if you know what your clients experience or what you hear about happening. Well, sure. Well, uh, before we began this podcast today, I was working on a case right now I can share with you. Mm -hmm. And this is a case that took place in November. And the allegation is that the uh, Washington State Patrol was driving uh, around Puyallup and um, they received information from a third party um, that a pedestrian, a pedestrian was hitchhiking on westbound SR-512. So that means a civilian drove by, saw someone holding a thumb up like this and said, oh, I got to call 911, <laughs> you know. Um, so the officer comes there and they see this individual walking on the highway He's not, he doesn't have the thumb up, but he's walking. So the officer didn't personally witness him hitchhiking. He just witnessed a person walking along the highway. Mm -hmm. So pulls him over, tells him, um, it's, if I can read it ex exactly, I told him he shouldn't be on the freeway and asked him if he wanted to ride off, which he agreed to. I asked him if I could search him before placing him into the back of my patrol car. And he said that that was okay. And then I asked him if he had anything. In his so basically what happened here was this guy came up to him. The officer said, you're not allowed to walk on this highway. I will give you a ride off. But for me to give you a ride off, I'm going to have to search you. Mm -hmm. now, this is a homeless individual who is just walking alongside the road. Maybe I had a sign. Yeah, I don't think he had a sign with him, but, you know, need food, something of that nature. Um, he's now in a trap, right? If he walks away, if he denies the officer's request, he's going to accuse him either with trespassing perhaps, or, you know, he couldn't arrest him for hitchhiking because he didn't witness it. On the other hand, if he has something in his pockets that he's not supposed to, which he happened to not have in his, you know, he wasn't supposed to, um, you know, then he's going to jail for that too. So it's just, it's just, a, you stopped him without probable cause to believe this guy was hitchhiking and it's not illegal to walk alongside the road. Or at least it's not a, it's not a trespass, if I can say that, right? So that's an example of like the sort of contacts we have where they're really pretextual to something else. And you're right that certain demographics disproportionately fall into this group, particularly poor people. 91% of people who get charged with a felony in Washington State are found to be indigent, and about 85% of uh, people charged with gross misdemeanors. Um, thank God for DUI. That's the most dem democratic crime I've ever seen. It hits black people, white people. Uh, it hits men, it hits women, mm -hmm. it has it hits all religions. I've even represented an Islamic woman who was wearing an obaya, arrested for DUI. Um, but most crimes tend to fall on select targeted demographics. And when I say found to be indigent, I'm talking extremely poor. In I think the city of Tacoma, to get a public defender, you have to make less than $2,000 a month. And it doesn't matter how big your household is. If you make 2000 a month, so 
you know, it's, it's households that earn $24,000 a year or less that fall into this situation. And that's 91% of them. Mm -hmm. Um, so there is a lot of that, um, you know, chippy stuff like, um, uh, the, the, um, the light bulb in the turn signal appeared to be somewhat dim. And so what it really is about is about finding out who these people are, if they have an active warrant, if there's a no contact order, finding excuses. And it's partially because I don't know if they'll admit it or not, but I can tell you, having been a prosecutor and done ride alongs before and seen videos, police are required or at least heavily encouraged for promotion purposes to make a lot of contacts and to file a lot of reports to generate, they're doing a lot of volumes to show that they're productive members of the police force. Mm-hmm. And that leads to um, extreme problems, I think. Mm-hmm. There's also as, as you, philosophical points of view. Um, the city of Olympia requires that every police officer who finds narcotics on someone must file a report with the prosecutor's office, every single one. No discretion whatsoever within their own office. But the Thurston County Sheriff's Office gives individual officers discretion. And so that results in situations where people who you knew, know do not need to be charged. Nonetheless, do get charged because the prosecutors themselves have their own volumes that they have to keep up, right? Um, and so that's what's extremely problematic here. But um, I'm not sure if I think I'm drifting off. No, your that's point. okay. Well, um one of the questions that I was wanting to ask you was whether um, I saw a report on social media. It was someone who um, she uh, leads a, a nonprofit working on law and justice issues. And she was talking about um, overtime for police overtime and the insidious ways that it can impact even charging decisions. And she said, you know, she was a, an attorney when she was active in practice Um and she got a case that just looked kind of a stupid, petty, nothing case. She said, almost without exception, when she'd look at what time did this occur, the um, the incident occurred almost at the end of shift. So that the mm-hmm. officer makes the arrest and then spends the next couple of hours in overtime status, writing it up, talking to people. And that way, um, the his pay goes up or her pay goes up time and a half, sometimes more. And that's why you see these, you know, one of the reasons why you see these extremely large overtime bills and overtime costs coming out of the police departments. And I wondered, have you, have you ever seen anything like that where you, and a little bit, I think it goes to the idea of, um, you know, a high activity log. One of the things a high activity log would do also would be lay the foundation for, we need more police officers. We need more budget. We need more. Yeah. So, so what does what sort of impacts does the the desire to get more money in either to the individual officers pockets or into the organization play in charging and their activities? I wasn't aware of that overtime thing, but that does make sense. That's not something that had ever been brought up to me before, but I'm willing to, to believe that um, there is a. I don't know how to say this here, but you always have to be very skeptical when you you review criminal statistics because criminal statistics are not necessarily a reflection of how dangerous your society is so much as what certain leaders in your society are trying to achieve or trying to prove. For example, if you want to get more police officers on the street, if you want to get more prosecutors in the office, you just start charging a lot more thefts as burglaries and a lot more thefts as robberies. And, um, you know, you, you charge a lot more 
for example, if a police officer pulled me over and I told them my name was Evelyn Lopez, there's lots of things they could do. They could say I was obstructing or giving a false statement to a police officer, which is a gross misdemeanor. Or they could charge me with identity theft if they wanted to say that identity thefts were on the rise. Or they could charge me with criminal impersonation. And it's all based on the discretion of the officer and of the prosecutor, but it all boils down to the exact same conduct. And whether or not it's a felony or a misdemeanor is purely up to their discretion. So if you want to say identity theft is skyrocketing in this community and we need to um, get more funding for the purposes of putting more police dedicated just to identity theft and stuff like that, you charge a lot more cases like that as identity theft. And then when you want to get reelected and prove that your program is working, you just start charging these as misdemeanors. And so suddenly shoplifting, burglaries become shoplifting and robberies become shoplifting. And, you know, this becomes false um, statements to officers. And the public's like, oh, wow, you know, they're, they're really great at their job. But it's, it's all, am I allowed to say these words? Um, okay, bullshit. It is all bullshit. This is not FCC. Okay. Um, um, conclusions. So, yes, there is that out there. And I think that one of the reasons why law enforcement was one of the last holdouts in our society to get behind marijuana decriminalization, candidly, was because of civil forfeiture, as I'm sure you guys have talked about here. I mean, I, that was something I was involved in when I was a prosecutor. And it was insane what we would do. We would um, do controlled buys with informants for marijuana out of homes out of Lakewood. And we wouldn't just do it once. We would do it multiple times. And the official reason we were doing this is, well, maybe a defense attorney would be clever enough to get this one incident dismissed. But if we do 19 buys from this guy, there's no way they're going to get out of 19 counts of, mm-hmm. of, 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 of drug dealing, right? But the thing is, every time we did that, the drug dealer would come to sell something in a different car or sell out of a different house. And so while he's getting charged for that, simultaneously, you know, he sold out of his mom's house. Therefore, we're going to see We're going to seize his mom's house. He sold out of his big sister's house. Therefore, we're going to seize that house. He sold out of his own house. So we're going to seize that house. He sold out of his business. So we're going to seize the business. He sold out of this car on this day. So we're going to take that car. And it just, it becomes an incredible cash cow in a system which has, very watered down due process and protections for the property owner, because we're talking about property here. We're not talking about a person's freedom, but the end result of that is that, you know, for a state like Washington, where people don't like to pay taxes, or at least they don't want to pay it under an equitable framework. um, You can fund your law enforcement heavily by civil forfeiture gains like that. And so like in Thurston County, a large percentage of the actual cop cars are on the street were seized via civil forfeiture. They were never purchased. They were taken. And that's how they get the new vehicles, right? So, um, yeah, there's that incentive too. And, you know, don't necessarily feel so bad for that particular individual because he knew what he was doing and he had a large operation. But there are a lot of other people, and you've heard the stories, who, you know, they're, they're, the mom was keeping their adult son in their house because their kid had full, fully, you know, matured and never gone anywhere in life. And that kid had some friends and he would sell drugs to them. And now the mom is losing her home because she wasn't policing her adult son. Situations like that cause external problems for this community. Um, So, yeah, there are serious collateral consequences to the community as a whole, not just to the individual. Mm -hmm. Um, Profit motive becomes the foundation of policing. Do you think, uh, and this is purely speculation, we can't, we don't really know, but do you, with the demands now for sort of defunding the police, which I'll say when I hear that, I think of 
let's rationalize our um, police and safety budgets. You know, let's let's take a critical eye to them and look at the equipment, look at the overtime, look at all those things. But if there is really an effective defund the police, does it become more rational or do we just sort of um, push people to look in all of these creative side endeavors to get this funding in? I mean, it, it, can you defund something or does it just sort of take on a life of its own and find some other sinister path? Well, there's a lot of different ways I could answer that question. Um, I don't know how many people who say defund the police really literally mean have no police. It's right. very difficult because from a defense, I, I, I consider myself a leftist, but I'm often at odds with a lot of things that at least the Facebook leftists I encounter seem to agree with. For example, I am not a fan of the gun control laws that come out because I know how those are disproportionately applied to people of color and poor people and are about protecting the community from felons with guns, which what they often mean is just a, someone who at one point in their life had a narcotic in their pocket, and now they have a gun in their car because they feel like they live in an unsafe neighborhood, never done anything violent in their life, but they're going to go to prison because they're unlawfully in possession of a firearm. We know that's disproportionately going to come on one demographic. Same with the mask law right now. I'm all in favor of people wearing masks, at least in confined spaces like grocery stores. But the idea that we're going to arrest people while simultaneously defend, defunding the police um, for not wearing a mask is extremely problematic. And by the way, in the four states that have thus far been enforcing with police the mask law, 87% of those who were arrested for not wearing a, belt, a mask were black. Mm-hmm. That's not an accident. And we know when we come up with new things to criminalize, it's going to disproportionately affect people of color. And so that's the, that's and in and, and particular, poor people too. That's I, my opinion of, from what I've seen, is that the system primarily targets people based on their socioeconomic status, followed by, to a large degree, their gender, candidly. 90% of our prison population is male, when only 3% of them are there for violent crimes. So it, I guarantee you that drug addiction is just as common among um, women as it is among men, but it's just not as heavily targeted. And then after that is race. And the the, the, the drum to more and more public safety that some of the left push is contrary to their other statements about more and more equality and ending institutionalized uh, uh, racism and et cetera, et cetera. So what I would like to see that I've heard come out of these discussions from the left, though, that does make sense is the idea of sending, you know, I, I think this county, and apparently we already have it, although I've never heard of it in my life, but John Lattenberg claimed on Facebook, at least, that we already have it. But um, if instead of sending police to respond to domestic violence calls, low-level domestic violence calls, let's send relationship counselors or experts with police nearby to address that. Mm -hmm. Because most DV incidents are just yelling and perhaps a shove. You don't need to send the cavalry along with that. And our current laws surrounding domestic violence prosecution um, have the chilling effect of encouraging victims not to seek law enforcement. Because the law says that if uh, an assault is alleged, the officer is required to make a determination of who the primary aggressor was and arrest that person. And then a no contact order is going to be imposed, which is going to throw them out of the house and significantly disrupt, if not destroy the relationship and potentially cause both of them to lose their apartment. Right. And so the end result of that is that if you are being abused by your partner, you may not call the police because, you know, if you do, you'll be made homeless because of the lack of discretion. So, um, Sending someone, and, and it's absurd because police have no training or skills that allow them to determine 
what happened in a fight they didn't witness. They usually just go down to, well, who called 911 first? Which is how you get these scenarios where both the man and the woman called 911 simultaneously, but one was two seconds quicker than the other. And so that one was deemed to be the victim. And it's, it's absurd. There's no marks, there's nothing, but there was maybe a shove. So if we could prevent people from becoming homeless, if we could prevent people from uh, looking at law enforcement as the problem rather than an aid to their, to their crisis, that would be great. And I do think that sending other trained professionals into situations like this could really help. But of course, you have to be willing to accept the fact that there are dangers in doing this, right? You know, what police officers do is dangerous. And that being said, it's dangerous. The the risks, I think, are acceptable if you can think it through, right? You know, if there's a man with a gun, you don't sound the marriage, marriage counselor, right? But, you know, if it's just yelling and shoving and stuff of that nature, let the cop be two blocks away and let them go in first. So I think that's a smart idea. Um, we do not need to arrest or people for possession of drugs. We just, we just don't, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not changing their behavior. I feel sorry for them. I encourage sending them the treatment, but the problem is we don't have treatment that works. We just don't. I wish there was a magic pill or a, a book you could read that could get you off heroin, but the best programs we have are 16% effective. And by that, I mean, they never used drugs again. What, what is possible is through extensive treatment to limit some of the more destructive side effects of their usage. And that in itself is worth something, yes. But in terms of going completely clean in life and not you know, ever being a problem for the community again, our best programs are only 16% effective. So um, there are other communities in the world who just don't have this emphasis on crimes like that and they have not devolved into chaos so I, I, I don't see why we have so much emphasis on this. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of, you know, completely defunding the police, which I, I don't know what I don't know what some people envision that would look like. I don't know. But at the very least, they don't need as many any, many toys as they have. Yeah. They don't need um, they don't need shell firing tanks. They don't need um, stingray cell phone surveillance devices. Um, you know, they, they don't need. Um, you know, here's the crazy thing. They have all these toys. And then when you actually deal with them in court and they, they, they have these lengthy police reports about what they allegedly saw. And then they show you these grainy, terrible photos to back it up. And you ask them, what is this? And say, well, we don't have a good camera. Like, you kidding me? I mean, you have, you have military grade everything, but you can't get a good cell phone. Ca- it's just, it makes no sense. Yeah. So um, smart policing, if nothing else would be a good idea, if not defunding them, but there's always going to be a need to have somebody to deal with the true dangerous people in, in your community. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Blame them. Well, let me, uh, let me pause there. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about sort of the escalation that we see at times that leads to, uh, too often to a murder, uh, of the individual in custody. Uh, and then I also want to talk about charging and your experience working with the prosecutor's office, especially since we sort of had, a long-term legacy of prosecutors who are all in sort of one, all what I would be willing to call a good old boys club. And that ended two years ago. And now we have a, a woman prosecutor who kind of came out of that club too, but it is quite different. So I'd be real interested in how you have experienced changes there. We'll take a break. <laughs> Hello, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by TAPCO, Pierce County's original credit union. 
You might already know that credit unions are not-for-profit financial cooperatives with a focus on enriching their members instead of big bank shareholders. TAPCO is committed to serving Tacoma and Pierce County, just like Channel 253. That means when you put your money there, you put it back into our community. Think about it. You go to the night market, you go to the Grand, and you shop at local stores. So why not keep your money local too? TAPCO offers the products and services you need home loans, auto loans, checking and savings, online and mobile banking, all with lower fees and better rates than big banks. Plus, TAPCO donates to local causes and supports our community in other ways, so you can feel good about helping your neighbors. To learn more about our local choice for all of your banking needs, visit tapcocu.org. My thanks to TAPCO for their support of this podcast and Channel 253. Hi, we're back. And before we get back into talking with Chris Van Vechten, I want to encourage you, if you are not members of Channel 253, to consider membership. Membership is $4 a month or $40 a year. And it gives you access to, well, let's just as a little teaser tell you, even more behind the scenes content coming very soon. Um, Plus, someday when we're able to gather in person again, we'll probably do some really fun events uh, adult civics happy hour and maybe some other things too. It's also a really good way of funding our efforts to record stories like this where we're talking to people in the community about the community, which is something that you don't really get anywhere else. So please consider membership. You can find uh, the information at channel253.com. So Chris, I also want to talk about these incidents that we see. I mean, we see them around the country. And I'll certainly be the first to admit, uh, far more commonplace than I ever realized. And I think if you talk to anyone in the Black community, they'll tell you, yeah, this has always been happening. It's just now that everyone's walking around with a camera in their pocket, in their cell phones, and we actually have video of it. But these escalations that occur very much uh, most of the time, apparently, with, with certainly with Black people, a lot of times Black young men, where the police are engaging in some way, maybe they're making an arrest, maybe they're not even making an arrest, but things seem to escalate very quickly into violence. Uh, both, It's just, um, even in the Manny Ellis case, we're still waiting to see what the state patrol comes out with. We have video of uh, the officers hitting him, beating him, restraining him, and then he dies in custody. Um, we have that case uh, out of Lakewood, where the young black man was uh, shot in the back by Lakewood police. Um, and we just have a claim filed also here in, uh, in Tacoma and Pierce County about another young black man shot in the back. Um, what do you think about this? I mean, is this something that is just endemic in police departments? Uh, is this something that I think this is something that I thought Tacoma actually might be a little bit better at because we hadn't had any uh, really um, significant too many significant instances. I can't say none because we have had them, but um, but now I think Tacoma is not necessarily better, although it's certainly quieter than most other places. But what are your thoughts on that? Are you asking me do I support the police killing black people? I don't. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> what do you, no, I just so. think. Do you think is it just is it just every place is going to have this until we until there's some kind of effective reform? Is is it something that urban police departments seem to have more of? I mean, it, it seems to be, at least in my opinion, based on this societal belief we have that um, black men, no matter how young, are dangerous. And so we react in fear 
Um, but I would, I would think that the police would be able to do better than that, but it doesn't seem to happen. I think it's a greater culture of viewing the world between as a division between good guys and bad guys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, when your prosecutors will talk about themselves as like the white knights and talk about us being on, you know, the dark side and stuff of that nature. You know, um, I, I could tell you, you know, a ton of stories and maybe if I can give you an, an analogy, I had a case in, uh, 2015 in Tacoma, since we're talking about Tacoma, I could give you other communities too. I don't want to just crap on Tacoma. Um, you know, police are following these two black men in an El Camino and allegedly, I don't know how they saw it, but allegedly they saw that the driver wasn't wearing his seatbelt, which I don't know how you do at night from behind while following, but that's what they stopped him for. They pulled him over. My client was the passenger and they asked my client, uh, to give them, um, his identification, which is illegal. You can't ask the passenger in a car that was stopped for a traffic infraction committed by the driver to give you their, you know, information. That's a, you know, a search, a lawful search. Um, he, as he was fumbling through his wallet to do so, the officers were convinced he had something hidden between his fingers. And so they asked him to spread his fingers and he refused to do it. So they opened up the car door and told him to get out. And this was like the same week where that incident had happened in South Carolina. You remember where the police had shot that man in the back multiple times while he was running and it was all caught on video. And then I think they planted the gun on him and came up with this whole story and just caused huge outrage. Um, This had been that same week. So my client, black man, freaked out, took off running, cop tripped him and then used what he called in his report pain compliance techniques, which means he punched him in the head repeatedly until he gave surrendered us eventually. And what they took off him was what they claimed was crack cocaine. Um, and based on a field test that they did at the scene, um, he said it wasn't, um, they took him in the jail. He was there for 33 days. I wanted to take this to trial on the basis that I thought it was an unlawful search. Um, he insisted to me that this was menstrual cramp medication. I didn't understand why a man would have menstrual cramp medication. And he had more than 12 prior drug convictions. So candidly, I didn't believe him. But I thought he had was illegally searched. And so I thought we could um, win on that basis. But he just wanted to get out. And so after I filed my motion, the prosecutor told him, if you just plead guilty to resisting arrest, we'll let you go. Okay. Um So he did that. And then a month after he did that, I received a letter in the mail from the Washington State Patrol, I'm sorry, from the Pierce County prosecutor. And the letter began by informing me that per Brady v. Maryland, they're required to tell me that the controlled substance they collected from him was not a controlled substance. They never said it was menstrual cramp medication or anything of that nature. They just said it wasn't a drug. And then the next paragraph is, if your client would like to take back his plea of guilty, please do so within the time frames allotted by the rules of professional conduct. And before I go on my scheduled vacation at da 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 there's no apology, nothing of that nature. There never, there never will be. And unfortunately, this particular client was homeless, so I never was able to find him. So he's got a, a conviction on him for something that objectively he didn't do. Um, but you would think that after beating the hell out of someone and throwing him in the jail for 33 days for anything, much less something you didn't do, there would be a desire to make amends for that. Mm-hmm. And there isn't. I have never, I, I have had 200 not guilty verdicts or dismissals over the course of my career. I have had one prosecutor apologized to a client in all that time. And that, by the way, is astounding because most uh, defense attorneys go their entire life without ever getting an apology for their client. And the one who apologized to my client, he ended up quitting that month. So I don't know if they, you know, but it was, it was, it was an astounding case that I won't go into details for, 
Um, but um, I think that if prosecutors and police officers were more ready to acknowledge their mistakes and apologize to the community, it would go a long way to forging trust between that community because my client in that case in 2015 I'm talking about, he ran from the police, not because he did anything wrong, but because he believed that police officer's duty to protect and serve the community didn't include him. That that what they mean by that is the white community, not not them, not the one that, you know. So um, I think that it would, one, go a long way to bridging relationships between the police community and the police, but it would also make the police officers feel safer themselves. Um, you know, the next time, what do, what do you think is going to happen the next time my client gets pulled over under a similar situation? Do you think he's going to, you know, peacefully talk to the officer and, you know, comply with everything you do? Or do you think he might fight back maybe even with a gun, right? And then we'll help the talk about how we need to keep guns from, you know, violent criminals and stuff like that. And we won't recognize the problem that the police have with how they deal with the community. So I think apologizing would go a long way, but it's not going to happen because they're afraid it will open it up to lawsuits and liability, which is ridiculous because it's very difficult to sue police officers. I would love to do it. It's very difficult to sue prosecutors. I would love to do it. I had a prosecutor, I believe, more or less kill a client of mine by filing a false um, pro, um, a false probable cause statement, one that completely took essential details out of the police report and dragged a you know, 79-year-old man out of a nursing home into a jail cell where he was denied the care he needed and he, he died in custody. You know, I, I would love to be able to um, bring lawsuits. But I've talked to the best personal injury attorneys around like Jack Connolly and whatnot. And they always say it's a sad case, but either one, there's not enough money recourse because again, if you're going after a poor a, a poor population, they, they only have so much to lose. So how much does their attorney have to gain back? And two, the barriers to going after law enforcement is very difficult. So recognizing that you can't get a financial recovery, I don't know why the uh, law enforcement is so unwilling to apologize for their mistakes. Um, but I think that would be a good first step. And I don't mean apologize only when the national media takes note of the fact that you strangle the person to death. You know, there are things that you could apologize for on a daily, if not weekly basis that happen. Mm -hmm. every, every one police report that gets filed, you should assume that there was at least five to 10 other incidents where someone was stopped, where nothing was written but someone was roughed up or, you know, their sense of autonomy was robbed from them. Um, and I don't mean like what happened with, with when you got stopped for that U-turn. I mean, yeah. someone got frisked, you know, and someone put your hands in your pockets and, you know, um, touched you in places that you wouldn't let a stranger touch you in to search you, found nothing. But then, you know, that, that incident doesn't get recorded. So I think body cameras would also go a long way too. I'd like mm -hmm. to see that. And it's, you know, remember a couple of years ago, we were talking about doing that in Tacoma. They did a pilot program here uh, in Pierce County. Um, they did it in the most ridiculous place possible, Gig Harbor. So, of course, <laughs> so, you know, I never, I don't think I ever saw a video from a, a Pierce County case, but they, they come out of Seattle all the time and they're, they do a lot of good, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think that'd be a good step. I think so too. Well, you know, in places where they have had the body cams, I think sometimes the police have been also glad because then there's an objective record of what happened. Um, not only if they do something that is inappropriate, but if they don't do anything but are accused of something inappropriate. I mean, having that objective uh, 
evidence can be very helpful to to either side, depending on what happens next, which you, you, know, you never know what to expect. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the white hats and the black hats, I, because I, as you know, I've worked, I worked, I took a break for a while, but I'm work, I now I'm back working at the attorney general's office. And for a long time, I think a lot of people were interested in joining that office because they would say, you get to wear the white hat. And I believe very strongly that what we do is, is good work and important work. Um, but a lot of times you're doing things that is uh, unpleasant for people. You know, you may be taking children away from families. You may be, um, in my line of work, which is about as unemotional as you can get, representing the Department of Retirement Systems, a lot of times you're saying no to people. No, you can't have this. No, you can't have that. No, you're not eligible for this. So the, the idea of, you know, there's a good side and a bad side, in, in my experience over the last 30 years, it's all just, it's all just the law. It's all just legal work. And I think particularly in, a, in the criminal arena where we say, you know, under our constitution, people have rights that need to be preserved and need to be um, protected to look at someone as though they're wearing a, a black hat when they're helping people fight for their rights seems a bit silly to me. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't want to shit on prosecutors either. I mean, I, there are some incredible ones. You know, what? the attorney I admire the most is a prosecutor in Thurston County who has done things that I would never do as a defense attorney. He had himself jailed for a day mm-hmm. incognito because, and he was trying to get other people in the office to go with him. And he said, look, we, we have this power. We should know what we're doing. We should know what it is to be a, to spend a day in jail as an inmate. And so he crazily, I, I can't imagine how the hell he was able to pull this off, but he was able to have himself taken into custody for 24 hours incognito in a jail to know what he was doing. And the craziest thing he ever did is years ago, he was prosecuting a juvenile defendant and something snapped inside him. He and his wife had been trying to have a kid for a number of years and it wasn't working out. And so after he convicted this kid, he asked him, would it be okay if he adopted him? And the kid's response was, go fuck yourself. But then <laughs> 24 hours later, he called him from the jail and said, hey, sir, were you serious? And now um, he lives with the prosecutor and periodically still gets in trouble again. And then they have to recuse him and bring in a conflict attorney to handle this. But um, I don't know a single defense attorney who would have adopted a client. Mm-hmm. And he adopted the person he was, but he does this because he really believes that in his role as a prosecutor, he can help people more than by getting them out of their mistakes. That's the other side of, they, they claim that all I'm doing is helping them escape responsibility. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that's true, by the way. I think for many people, just getting in this experience is a wake-up call in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I get them out of it by one miracle or another, um, they will they will change their behavior, <laughs> candidly, most of them. Yeah. Now, you're right. There are some helpless sites out there, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. Well, what about our local prosecutor's office? Have you seen any change in how things work there um, since Mark Lindquist left and Mary Robnett came in? And I yes. and I said I know that a lot of a lot of the senior staff they've they've pulled a lot of people from the attorney general's office. So I know now more people at the prosecutor's office than I ever did before. So the impression I have gotten, and I, you know, to make sure I'm not alone in this, been asking other attorneys is that. Robnett is a, and her deputies are a lot tougher on us than linguists were, which we knew was going to happen. Um, the reason why people in the defense attorney's office wanted Robnett over Lindquist had nothing to do with the idea that Robnett was going to be more generous to our clients. It was a, a question of concerns about other things that were happening under Mark Lindquist's um, stewardship. Um, so that means we have to work harder now. 
um, the um, bulldogs in her office who were somewhat muzzled under Lindquist have been released. Some of the, you know, people, as you said, have come back. And so um, there has been an escalation of, um, I'm not sure charging, but negotiation, harsh, harsher negotiation, harsher sentences. Um, people are getting, I had a client just last winter who had no prior criminal history period, who all she was accused of doing was um, stealing mail, but because there was identities in the mail and like each one was another count, um, she ended up getting a, 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 there was another allegation too when they ran things concurrent, but not, it was all property crimes. And 13 years is what she's now serving for someone with no prior history for property crimes. That would never have happened under Lindquist. And we're talking about like 13 or 14 victims here. So yes, a lot. But again, it's a, it's a property crime for someone with no prior history. That would not have happened under the Lindquist administration. So you're, you're getting more, if, if you are a more aggressive prosecutor, you have more freedom now under Romnet from what I can tell, if that makes any sense. Now, um, are police behaving any differently? Not really from what I can tell, no. But um, you're not hearing the same sort of complaints or concerns that we had under the Lindquist model. So I don't think anyone regrets how they voted one way or whether, if you voted for Lindquist, I don't think you regret it. If you voted for Romnet, I don't think you regret it either, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I endorse them both effectively when yeah. I the thing because it doesn't matter. I'm going to fight either one. Right. They both ask for money. I'm like, why? Because <laughs> I mean, we're going to be fighting each other either way. So, yeah. So do you think, is the office, do you think, do you think it's okay? I mean, they may be tougher, but it's still, it feels like the office is, is uh, fair or running better, or is it just, you know, this is the way it works in, in our system. I don't like the idea that what happens to you, is so necessarily okay. I do, and I don't like the idea that people have discretion in life. Mm-hmm. Um, if you like how they choose to exercise that discretion because they look at the individual facts of the case, that's a good thing. Um, if you don't like it, then it's a bad thing. You know, um, is it more fair? No. Is it less fair? No. Is it? I mean, you know, it's. The problem doesn't lie, in my opinion, with necessarily who's responsible for sending you to jail so much as who's writing the law. And that's the thing that really bothers me is how everyone points to someone else. It's, mm-hmm. you know, the, judge, the judges say the legislature in their wisdom, the legislature says, well, I never thought the prosecutors would do this. And the prosecutors say that, well, the judge is demanding this. And it just goes around and around and around. And no one ever takes responsibility for how we got to this situation. But every every session no matter what, we have more things to criminalize, which fuels this thing further. And we have new ways of addressing crime through programs that are, we know not necessarily effective and are very expensive and are in some respects traps for people clogging this thing up. So um, it's a mess. Um, I don't know how to say that you can solve it just by voting in or voting out someone. But I would say that um, the new idea we have that if we just put minorities on the bench is going to change everything is a complete delusion. Um, I think we have six minority uh, black judges in Pierce County right now. Um, I believe four of them are from the prosecutor's office. To give you an understanding of how ridiculous that is, only 2% of prosecutors nationwide are black. So the fact that four out of six of ours come from that 2% 
is not a reflection of how if the theory was if we put people of color on the bench, they are going to improve things for the community of color. That is not going to pan out if you go for these particular people of color, if that makes sense. So um, that's my opinion. And that's what I've seen. All right. Um, One of the things I was wondering when you were talking about sort of the circular nature that, you know, the legislature says we didn't think prosecutors would charge this. The judges say, well, this is what the law says. I do. I do hope and, and wonder, hope, wonder if and hope that it will be that if we get more diversity into the legislative arena, more world experience, then we might have some different opinions, because I do think one of the reasons that we criminalize every little thing is because we've had predominantly white people in the legislature. And our default is to is to call the police and is to think, well, that should that should be against the law. We don't preserve the police for just the high safety, high danger situations. We we think, you know, well, that should be against the law. That should be against the law. Wearing a, you know, not wearing a mask should be against the law. Um, you know, parking infractions should be against the law. And I think that that creates this um, this sort of, you know, police state mentality that is not, if, if we were all white middle-class people, we could all function within that police state, I think, quite effectively, but we're not. And so when the legislature only reflects that very narrow segment, I think you get a law that is um, oblivious to the, the, the real life consequences. But I don't know. Yeah, no. I mean, it's a very exciting time since you brought that up, because we've got a candidate running um, to the west of us in Kitsap County named Tara Simmons, who, if elected, will be the first formerly incarcerated person yes. to be elected at least to this state legislature, if not nationwide. She she's a lawyer now. Um, she's a nurse. She was a nurse before she went to prison for drug dealing. Um, but that's a hell of a, a breadth of experience that we really could use. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so excited by her campaign. Um, in the same breath, though, I, I think you're, you're on to something here. It goes beyond just the legislators. though. So it, it ultimately comes down to the voters mm-hmm. and what and how they respond. And, you know, we're all guilty to a certain point of how we got to this situation. If you grew up in an upper middle class suburban area like I did, um, and you never left that mentality, you will have a totally different view of the situations of, of crime in general. You know, yesterday, when I left my office, there were two homeless people out on the steps of my office, and one of them was shooting up heroin. Before becoming a attorney, I might have backed back into my office, called the police and, and said, there's, there's a guy out here doing drugs, I, I need help, right? And the police might have responded. Um, but knowing that this person just has an addiction problem, I just went out to him, told him to be safe, to please clean it up when he left in the morning and came back. My, my thing had not been vandalized at all. He slept there over the night. Yes, he used drugs. And his friend, I'm sure, used drugs there too. But they cleaned up their stuff and they left away. And I'm satisfied with that conclusion. But that's the um, experience I've, I've been fortunate enough to be in um, by having been in this world now for a decade, um, there are people who never leave their bubble, you know, and um, so long as they vote based entirely on their experience and they demand that politicians act exclusively on their experience, you're not going to see systemic change. And so perhaps more than just elect, and I, I totally support everything you just said there, but I think being willing to listen to other people's experience and, and to give it more than just, well, that's an interesting NPR 
alternative perspective, but actually like think about it further. And I don't know what it actually takes. Maybe, maybe experience it yourself. Maybe that's what is required. Maybe more people just need to experience this system itself. Go to, go, I would, I would tell you to go to court and, and watch what was happening, but that's not happening. That's not allowed right now in the, the zoom world we're in there, but I've had the fortune of having four high school and college interns shadow me over the past couple of years. And every single one of them has been shocked by what they've seen. Um, and it's really altered their perception of, you know, the justice system. And I hope that if nothing else, you know, they'll vote based on what they've been able to observe. So, you know, visit someone in jail <laughs> get, 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 if they'll let you right now, but, you know, meet, meet a prisoner, you know, don't fall for anything. Don't give them your social security number or anything of that nature, but, you know, get to know the people who are on the front lines of this. Yeah, that makes sense. And then vote based on their experience. Yeah. Well, that sounds, that's always the end, isn't it? Try to find out and vote what you know. Yeah. And we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, I really appreciate you um, talking with me today. Do you want to uh, tell us either your office phone number or email if people want to get in touch with you? Sure. You can call me at uh, 253-666-8987. And my email is Chris with a C-H at sound, S-O-U-N-D, lawyering, L-A-W-Y-E-R-I-N-G.com. And you can also look me up at soundlawyering.com. All right. Thanks, Chris. We really appreciate it. That is it for this week's uh, coronavirus and Tacoma talk. And uh, if you have ideas for future episodes or questions, you can reach me uh, on Twitter at true underscore Tacoma or email true Tacoma at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 podcast Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.